There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, I'm Phil Dobby, and this time on the Debunking Economics podcast, women in the workforce with more people in the household working. Has that made us better off, or is it simply pushing up the price of things, particularly homes, and adding to the inequality in society with the two-income households competing against single-income households? Okay, that's a loaded question, but if that is the case, what do we do about it? We've discussed all that today on the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keen. Well, the next Doctor Who is going to be a woman. It seems to be front page news in the 21st century. A woman will be playing that role. It seems a TV show where the lead character travels through time and a telephone box that's bigger on the inside than the outside. He can metamorphize into a woman. And that's news? Well, why not? After all, women are becoming more commonplace in the workplace. They make up almost half of all those employed in Australia today, actually 47%, whereas back in the mid-70s, it was only about a third. So what does that do to the economy? And Steve Keen, in in Australia, the number of male full-time workers has increased by 43% 43% since 1978. Over that same 40-year period, the number of women working full-time has increased 112%. It's more than doubled. So that surely has to be a good thing, doesn't it? This is this is one of the things where uh, the, with a complex system, the feedback is going to be what you don't expect because, yes, it should be a good thing. And, of course, being raised in Australia, I mean, born here in 1953 and uh, growing up between, you know, well, let's say, what's, what's, what's your first year of the big, big rapid increase in the number of women in the workforce? striking oh well no i've just taken a year of 1978 because that's as far back as i could get from the australian bureau oh, of statistics okay. well, see, 78, by the time 78 came in, i was 25 of course yeah and um and so i've this was you know my mind you know, first quarter of my century of my life on the planet and at the beginning of it clearly the uh, the the norm was that the the man was the breadwinner and i'll give you a little uh, little instance of that which is in in my family's case it just shows you how much attitudes have changed. My father and mother met with the Commonwealth Bank, and one of the rules of the Commonwealth Bank is that when um, when the uh, when a couple got married, the wife had to leave working the bank. <laughs> wow! Okay, that okay. was a rule. That was mm. a rule, and it was enforced. So my mother had to quit uh, when she and she and dad got married, and therefore became a one-income family. When beforehand there were two singles. Um, uh, now, if they had, if they had hypothetically remained singles, of course, I wouldn't be having this conversation with you. Um, but if they'd done that, then they would have been attempting to buy a house on their single income, and they would have been competing with other families who uh, were doing the same thing on their single income. So the the, the basic com- competition for for house prices was single income competition, and. The, if you had a, if you had the the trade unions bargaining for wage levels and wage rises and so on, they were bargaining fundamentally on the assumption there was one income earner. Now, when you get to the stage where there are two income earners, uh, then there's two possibilities. 
you either double effectively the income of the family relative to costs, or the costs rise in various ways, and you end up getting the same amount of effective income out of two, out of two where you used to get out of one. And frankly, it's the latter that tends to happen, and a major factor in that, of course, has been house prices, but it's not been the only factor. Uh, when, you, when you increase uh, the number of, of workers coming onto the market without, increase, without maintaining their bargaining power, uh, then those those incomes can go down. And fundamentally, that is what's happened through a combination of wage rises being lower than they might have been uh, if, the, if the number of available workers hadn't increased. And there's also a change in the when you've got the, the obvious market where uh, people are always saying supply and demand matters, which is the housing market, the impact of those extra people and extra incomes turning up is we started bidding up house prices. But isn't, so, it, isn't it in part, though, compensating for the fact that we do have an ageing workforce? Because, so aren't women often simply replacing uh, men and replacing old people. So the reason I ask that is because, again, going back to 1978, the population of Australia uh, since then has grown by 71%, but the number of people working full-time has increased by just 63%, even allowing for the fact that we now have more women in the workplace and we've got these, you know, these dual-income households. So don't we need more people to be able to work to actually fill in for the jobs that are being... uh, uh, let loose by older people. That's what we were in. What we actually, what you can call the shortage economy, where the problem was inadequate supply. Uh, and this is one thing I should be. I'm just, just found I'll be involved in writing a, a chapter on a, a book of the leading economist who made this case, who's a guy called Janos Kornai, uh, that capitalism is not supply constrained; it's demand constrained. Mm. And the argument here is that uh, uh, if we were in a socialist economy or a central command economy of some description, where as a case of having to allocate workers to get things done, it would always be a shortage of workers that led to things not being produced. Uh, but his point was in capitalism actually drives the whole system is a shortage of demand. And the basis for that is the competitive nature of capitalism. And on this front, by the way, Corn I is uh, overall in favour of capitalism rather than socialism. So I don't think don't, that anybody think it's a political case he was making here. Uh, he made the point that with a demand-constrained economy, it's demand-constrained because there are dozens of competitors in different markets. Let's say there's maybe four or five major car makers, for example. They're all for the same demand and because you're in a growing economy you normally when you build a new factory you're operating at maybe 50% of the factory's capacity and it's designed been designed thank god by engineers rather than economists uh, consequently it, it is designed to be most efficient when it's fully employed so at 50% it's lower uh, efficiency than it will be at pretty close to 100% of, uh, occupation and therefore prices fall, uh, cost of production fall as the amount of, of workers added. They don't rise in the usual myth of neoclassical economics. But that world is one where you therefore have on average, and you can see this in the American statistics, something between 15 and 30% of industrial capacity is vacant. It's certainly really it's never been the case that... Uh, and I think in America's history, that its factories have had anything more than 90% total uh, capacity. So it's not a case of needing the workers. You need the demand right. to, to fill that gap. So, so there's more and, people, uh, th- th- there's, then, these, yeah. there's jobs, you're saying, for these extra people. But doesn't that mean they'll add to the demand uh, because they've got jobs? After all, they're making more money. And uh, look, if we didn't have more women in the workplace, wouldn't demand actually go the other way? Wouldn't it decrease? Because uh, after all, you know, those two income households are simply replacing the reduced proportion of the workforce who are of working age. If we just had a uh, single income household and an aging workforce, we'd have less demand, wouldn't we? But the, the, again, 
again, this is the, the whole element of, of complex feedbacks in a complex system, which capitalism is. And, uh, you know, I've just recently been doing work on the role of energy in production. And one of the questions that came up there is why did the industrialization begin first in the UK? And one of the uh, article I hadn't seen previously by a, a sort of mathematical economic historian, and I'm going to explore his arguments more now that I've finally uh, seen them, said that one of the reasons why this industrialization happened in the UK rather than happening in France or Germany, where, of course, many of the um, migrant, uh, I think I've forgotten the actual uh, class of migrants who came to the UK at that time due to persecution in the in the religious persecution in uh, on mainland uh, UK, mainland Europe, but one of the reasons that happened was that wages were substantially higher in the UK than they were in France, and therefore when you worked out was it economic to invent something like the spinning jenny in uh, in France versus the UK, the answer is no, it wasn't. So the development of the spinning jenny, which of course was the one of the several one of the several machines that made the UK an industrial powerhouse, because it started supplying the clothing of the world back in the uh, late seventeen hundreds, early eighteen hundreds. Right. Okay. So so that leaving, so the saving in labour costs was going to be bigger in Britain than it was in France. So that so that led to innovation rather than just employing more cheap workers. Get that. But if you've got more workers, again, wouldn't their demand create this need for innovation because we want to buy more stuff? So you've got to yeah, but produce more. Um, you think back to the the 1950s what's the image we had in the 1950s and it was a time when uh, when an American this is looking particularly at the American pattern an American worker uh, with his wife and the three kids uh, was driving around in a brand new Ford car or General Motors car um, and and it certainly wasn't the level of, of uh, technological prosperity that we're used to right now, but it certainly was the level of income prosperity. Now, that is no longer the case. And if it was a case that uh, we just needed more workers and that would solve the problem, then the increase in the workforce generated by women coming into the workforce would have been a sufficient cure. Now, in fact, you've, you've got an, a hollowed-out industrial sector in the United States. Uh, people work contract hours in the UK. Um, all this stuff... Doesn't look like the extra supply of workers did much for the for the uh, for the productivity of the country, uh, or for the the bargaining and buying power of workers. It's been selling what it's capable of being producing that's been capitalism's problem. And then you come down to the question of distribution of income, and what is the impact of these changes on the distribution of income? It hasn't been good for workers. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I mean, I guess that's quite an easy argument to make, isn't it? If you've got a two-person, a two-income household, um, then you know that's a big advantage uh, for that yeah, household because yeah. Double, sure. double, double income, whereas if you're a single family, um, a, a single mum, for example, um, you know, you're going to fall a long way behind. Yeah, and the thing is that when it, when, it's, when it first happens, that is, that is what happens. Your individual income does go up um, and you do notice it. I mean, again, speaking of, again, personal experience, it's my, my mother uh, realised at one point that dad was never going to work out what the housekeeping cost and went out and found herself a job uh, and uh, employing her considerable clerical skills um, and was then working part-time for the, the rest of, uh, of, of of my father's life and the initial impact there, bang, suddenly she could handle, handle the housekeeping so uh, and, and all the expenses of the family and and were improved. But then the, then the question is, okay, what's that going to do to the supply of the supply of labour actually goes up? What does it do to the price of labour over time? What does it do to the bargaining power? And if you're not conscious, and also what does it do to the house prices uh, when you've got extra money coming into the families to buy them? Uh, these feedbacks occur. And, uh, and and over the long term, they can end up meaning that the, the income of the, of, the, of the working class as a whole doesn't rise and may even fall. 
And also, it can be possible if you've got a supply of labour coming into the market, then maybe capitalists don't have to innovate because labour's too expensive uh, to keep on going. So these, 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 the simple answer that you, know, you, you need the extra people to produce the output. Um, France might have thought the same thing about clothing. England goes and invents the spinning jenny. Well, look, I mean, the reason why I thought this was an interesting topic was because I, I think mm, for, most, for most people who aren't economists, it seems bleeding obvious, doesn't it? They're, they're thinking, oh, my God, you know, would the two of us now have to work in this household? And by the way, here's a figure from, from Statistics Canada. Dual earners have gone from 35% of couple families with a young child. So two people with a young child in 1976, 35% of them uh, were dual earners. That, that same family in 2015, it's 70% of them are dual earners. So it's doubled. That is, that's quite a leap, isn't it? And I'm sure, you know, people are looking and saying yep. over this, over this period of time, hell, you know, we're actually no better off than, uh, than our parents were. And for us to, uh, to achieve that, two of us have to work, whereas only my dad worked. Yeah. I mean, the problem really wasn't so much that there was a, you know, the men went out to work and the women were, 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 were the problem was, frankly, that men were the ones who went to work and women stayed home. And we had a sexist division of labor that led to the political uh, and social issues that that gave rise to. And it was the it was the nature of the culture uh, that the men are the ones who are expected to go to work and, and, and the women were expected to stay home. And it was the it was the that, that was, the, you know, the, the old sexual revolution as, as well as feminism, all these things tied together, were a political shift which had unintended economic consequences. And they certainly weren't, if you look at the amount of uh, free time people have and and is it in a collective sense, um, then, yeah, people are working harder for less these days and, and feeling the strains and the stresses in a way that uh, that didn't occur back in the in the 50s. The strains and stresses really over the sexist division of labour. Women, uh, you know, having, intelligent women having to give up careers, and as the case of my mother's, mother's situation at the Commonwealth Bank, all these things were the, the social background and the political action to try to re- address that fed into an economic system which was complex enough to stuff up the uh, the financial outcomes. So if we uh, looked at this the other way around then, and I'm not suggesting this, would, this, this is something that ever gets introduced, but if there was a law passed that said, if you are a, uh, a family unit, if you're two people living together, whether you're married or not, only one of you can work. This is a new law. Uh, I can't see it ever happening. But what would be the impact of that? You would potentially force... Um, you know, get higher bargaining power for workers. You would have potential pressure on capitalists to invent, to innovate more and continue replacing uh, labour with machinery, which has been the long-term trend of capitalism. Uh, you'd have bargaining issues as well. Um, so, but it, it would not necessarily mean bang are going to halve workers' incomes. Uh, it would initially. It would initially have yeah. that, that, that type of dramatic impact because you would not see wages of the one sole worker increasing. So, so these there are initial impacts and there are long-term impacts as, as the system adjusts to a new set of rules. But you could actually, if you imagined, um, uh, and this comes back to the type of world we had back in 1945, which is something I, I focus on uh, quite a bit because I've, I mean, being a, a late baby boomer, I've seen it. Maybe I've thought about it more than most baby boomers do. But if you look at the the white paper on employment that was written by Nugget Coombs, uh, this famous Australian um, innovative 
public servant back in in the uh, post-war period. Uh, there's, there's a quote in there which is stuck in my mind forever, and it's, it's got a, it's got a sexist ring to it because of the time, but it gives you an idea of the attitude that was had to but the, what the economy should be doing for whom. And it said the the intent of government policy is to maintain such pressure on employment as to guarantee a shortage of men rather than a shortage of jobs. <laughs> now, that is saying our objective is full employment and the maximum possible income for the majority of the people in the country. Fast forward to 1975, et cetera, et cetera, and the argument is we've got to control inflation and screw the workers. If unemployment rises, that's just one of the consequences of bringing inflation down. Now, of course, inflation did occur because of the bargaining power of workers in the in the late uh, 19, early 1970s to mid-1970s, and that was also part of the whole credit system. Again, again, that's my focus that I see the credit dynamics happening at the same time. So there was a bubble caused by a huge growth in, in, in credit that led to building booms throughout the, uh, throughout the Western Hemisphere, certainly in Sydney. Uh, when I could see that with my own eyes. Um, so that all fell apart in the 70, 74 to period, and we then had the inversion, and it was now a case of, well, you know, the objective is to, is to maintain low and uh, if that means a high rate of unemployment, well, that's the natural rate of the economy, and when I mean, you can't change what's natural, et cetera, et cetera. So the whole, um, at the same time as we had a... a a libertarian liberal shift uh, in terms of feminism and the rights of the individual and and so on happening at the political sphere we had a shift in economic philosophy we're going in the opposite direction to say well the economy is about the economy not society and uh, and if workers have to have a high level of unemployment that's just how the how the market system operates um, forgetting of course that thinking you could behave that way is what led to the great depression and the second world war you made the you made the point, um, and you've made it several times that really, you know, one of the one of the objectives of an economy should be to say, you know, to, to try and reach full employment, so everybody is uh, is gainfully employed in 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 one way or another. Uh, how does that sit with this idea of two income versus single income households? Because you are, if everybody is gainfully employed, you, you have the, you you have this problem, don't you? That those people are going to pool their resources and are going to push up the price of assets, particularly houses, to to a level where you know if you're not married, tough luck because you can't afford to buy one. Yeah, I mean that's why I'm, I'm not. Um, I mean, full employment uh, is full employment of what? You know, I mean, one of my favourite. Uh, even the guy who wrote the little Abner cartoon. Um, who's quite a quite a comic. He once put a show on which was called "Do Blondes Have More Fun," and he went through the uh, Marilyn Monroe yada yada yada, and finally finished up the show with saying, "Yes, categorically, it's obvious blondes have more fun. The question is, more fun than what?" <laughs> In other words, with full employment, um, what do you want to have full employment? What do you mean by that? And what it fundamentally means is that a an income earning unit has sufficient income and is and is doing what it wants to do. Now, back in the 1950s, the full employment meant the man in the house has, a, has, has an income. When you say full employment uh, and, and, and then the hours were nine to five, et cetera, et cetera, now full employment um, to get enough money to survive for a lot of people, that means working a 60-hour week and both of you doing it and neglecting the kids, if you have any, and some of you are making the decision not to have them because of the strains are just too great and the cost of housing is too high. So, a- again, full employment is one of those little two-word slogans that needs to be uh, substantially beefed out and put in the context of what are our social objectives rather than just said, let's let's try to achieve full employment. Right. So you have to have some sort of uh, controls in place then. You have to say, uh, you know, which is uh, obviously seen as being a, a socialist move by many, 
if you start to say, well, you can only work so many hours in a week? Yeah, and of course, one of the huge uh, campaigns right from the early days of the Industrial Revolution was to reduce the length of the working week. Originally, the 40, I think the original campaign was the 48-hour uh, week, and then we went for the 44-hour week, then there was the 40-hour week, and then the 35-hour week. Now, anybody uh, imagining they're working 35 hours these days, I mean, when you're looking in a family unit uh, and considering that that's the fundamental unit of a capitalist economy because you've got to be able to reproduce the, working, the, the, the workforce, um, that, that that unit, full employment back in um, the 1940, 1960s and 70s when you had the idea of a 40-hour week was 40 hours a week for the family. Now it's uh, when, when, when the so-called legal one, I think, has hit 35 hours, um, the work for the family is probably 100 hours because the couples are averaging 50 hours a week of uh, work each and trying to juggle the kids in the process. I think I can, you, you can fill in your own personal experience on that front. Um, mm. it, it, it is not the outcome that the social objective of full employment was intended to achieve. No, well, look, I remember when I was at school being told, you know, by the time we're, we're all grown up, uh, there'll be this late age of, uh, of leisure where we'll all be working less because there'll be less jobs for us to do and uh, the number of hours will be greatly reduced. I was definitely sold a pup on that. I was quite looking forward to it. <laughs> and it hasn't happened, of course. I mean, the, the, it's been a shift in income distribution and a shift in power. And uh, the working class is, is working far harder than it used to in the past. A lot of it's also become the, uh, the, you know, the people who are discouraged workers who can't get jobs uh, in, in the, the skill set that they have. The factories have been shut down, the jobs are being moved overseas, etc., etc. So... It's, it shows you can't just have a sloganistic approach to an economy and you have to say, what are your social objectives in that economy? Mm. Uh, and and the, I think it's not just the, the, the right that's failed to do that, it's the left as well and to some extent the movement for full employment still hasn't uh, sat down and said, okay, what do we, what do we, when we say full employment, what the hell do we mean by it? But this is, uh, this is hitting both ends of the income spectrum, isn't it? So on the one side, you've got people who are forced to do many hours just to make ends meet because, uh, and, and, you know, we, we can explore the reasons behind that. Why, why are people having to, uh, to, to work so much harder now just to, to, to create a sustainable level of income? But at the other side, you've got the uh, aspirational high income, uh, double income, perhaps no kids, but even with kids, the double income households where they've both got professional jobs and they're, they're earning a mozza, but they want to earn a mozza times two by both going to work so that they are so many steps ahead of everybody else so they can get that much bigger a house. Yeah, so, uh, so, it, it comes uh, back we, to the income distribution again because as well as having a, 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 a worker versus banker distribution shift and that's what I in theoretically that's what I when I do my mathematical modeling that's what I see it's not been worker to capitalist it's been worker to banker the sort of incomes that people who can't understand why people complain about the prices of things in London or you know think that it's lack of initiative those, those are the wages that are applying at the upper echelons of the of the um, you know, I can't call it wage labor but the upper echelons of management and so on mm. and uh, and you've got this huge income distribution issue that for people like that if you're earning 750,000 quid a year I don't think the cost of, tra of transport in London is going to worry you uh, but if you're down at the level and I'm thinking of my cleaner now who uh, and I, I find it she almost refuses to get paid more than seven pounds an hour and i think how on earth does anybody survive in london if they're earning if they're doing a 40-hour week and earning 280 quid i just can't believe it so um this this huge distribution of income disparity is so great now that you you think 
um, maybe we should be addressing that rather than thinking about the employment issue first off. Uh, we have to get back to saying we want uh, people to be able to work here, and if they put in a decent, uh, you know, a decent effort across a reasonable number of hours for a week, they are going to earn enough to be able to survive. That is not the case anymore in capitalism. Mm. All right. A final question then. You're at a dinner party, Steve, and somebody uh, sitting opposite you, uh, and it's a, it's a mixed dinner table. Uh, there's, a, you know, men and women together. Uh, obviously not an Australian one, because obviously you'd all be sitting in separate rooms. I understand the way it works. Uh, but uh, you'd, uh, but uh, somebody says, Steve, you know, since, uh, since the 60s and 70s, more women have gone to work now. Uh, they've taken a lot of, uh, a lot of the good jobs away, uh, possibly because they're smarter. But in any case, it means the twice as many people working we're actually none of us are any better off and it's all because women have now infiltrated the workplace if they'd all stayed at home we'd all be so much better off what's your diplomatic answer to that uh, accusation I think it's your uh, your suggestion a short while ago, mate, and that is to say that what we should have is a declaration that the that uh, a, a family uh, should be a one income family. And the short term consequence of that is that there will be a decrease in spending power, but the long term, uh, and that could hit the economy, I guess. But the, but 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 your point in the long term is we're not going to get the, the this asset inflation. We're not going to have this uh, this this income divide. You're potentially. I mean, again, it's not a simple answer. I'd be doing a lot more than just saying that. But that—that uh, that is the the background that you have to look at the feedbacks of effect of what you're doing, and uh, and the feedback effects of increasing the workforce. Uh, which really came out of the political move for women's liberation, uh, had economic consequences that weren't necessarily the, what people who were campaigning for that thought they would be. Yeah. It's um, it, 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 it's none of it's going to happen, of course. So that raises the other question. Has it gone as far as it will go? Because, I mean, it's happened. We've now got dual income households. Um, you know, we're not going to get treble or quadruple income households. So uh, has it reached a point where, you know, it, it's not going to get any worse? The, the issue is, you know, perhaps it's a, just a, a new status quo. Well, the other side of that is, in fact, you might get a treble and quadruple household because the kids are out there trying to earn enough money to, to put able for the family. You are getting to the point where everybody is working, including the kids, certainly over the age of 17 if they're trying to pay university fees uh, in the UK. So you you are having this multiple uh, house, you know, everybody working. When you think, is that what life is all about? And the answer should be no. No. Well, it certainly is no, isn't it? And yet, you know, it's not discussed. It's not something that the politicians have their eye on. No, they certainly don't. And on that cheery note, we'll leave it there till next time. And next time, we look at post-Keynesian economics. Many of us understand, at least at a basic level, what John Maynard Keynes advocated. But how is it applied today? And who are the post-Keynesians? Steve Keen describes himself as one of them. So so what's the difference between what they advocate and what Keynes himself stood for? That's next time on the Debunking Economics Podcast. We'll see you then. I'm Phil Dobby. Thanks for joining us. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 
If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy the Y-Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search the Y-Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.